Welcome to the panel on RNZ National, Boopsy Marin and Andrew Clay with me this afternoon and lovely to have your company. I'm Wallace Chapman. Food prices up by the largest amount in 13 years. It was announced today. We're paying 8.3% more for food than a year ago. Fruit and veggies up 15%. Meat, poultry and fish up by 7.6%. Look at leeks, $2.79 each. Apples, six bucks a kg, a whole salary, five a reach. Cauliflower, eight dollars a pop. Restaurant and ready to eat food prices increased 6.5%. The increase was due to rises in all the food categories measured. Stats NZ said with us uh, this afternoon is Susan Killersby, agriculture economist at ANZ. Kia ora, Susan. Hello. So the largest year-on-year increase since 2009. Um, You know, you see those stats, a bit of a shock, um, but not entirely unexpected, Susan? Well, no, not really. I mean, we're seeing massive increases in the cost of food production, um, whether it be here in New Zealand or in other parts of the world, um, really being pushed up by um, the energy crisis, which has pushed up the cost of fertiliser and pushed up the cost of fuel. And then also labour um, prices have gone up a lot, and that, that is a big contributor to our food costs as well. So all those go into just raising those prices and also um, down to dairy prices as well? Yeah, dairy prices have been strong for a while. Um, I mean, in the international market, they've come off a little bit um, more recently. But what we tend to see in our local market is more of a delay in that pricing coming forward because there's a lot more contracts negotiated um, and the likes. So we found international prices peaked back in about March, but we're sort of starting to see more of that flow through um, to our local prices now. Mm. Uh, I suppose the question is... um what can you anticipate in the next short term, Susan, and also uh, in the long term, looking into your crystal ball, I guess? Yeah, I mean, at the shorter term, we are being influenced by that energy crisis, um, particularly the impact um, of the Ukraine situation. And that's also pushed up the price of fertiliser. So we're seeing less fertiliser being used in some places, or which is restricting food production or it's just adding to the cost of that production with being high fuel prices and um, the pandemic's still disrupting labour you know supply in some parts as well and, and certainly you know here in New Zealand we're very tight in our, our labour market so in the short term there is you know a number of factors there which are going to keep um, food prices quite high um, and in addition you know some countries have experienced weather events that hasn't um, helped the situation either when we're looking more over the long term, there's there's some real challenges there as well because we've got you know rising global populations, the demand for food is rising, um, and yet we're starting to run out of some of the resources that we put into you know increasing food production, like adding extra land, adding extra fertilizer, is not particularly sustainable. A lot of countries have water shortages, um, and, and certainly water is a big input into food. So we've got you know we do have some real sort of constraints there, which um, is, is you know going to result in food prices over the next decade or so, certainly being um, higher than what they have been previously. Oh my goodness! So we're looking at a ten-year um, uh, uh, we're we're looking at a ten-year um, high cost plan regarding to food, um, Boopsy. What did, what do you think about that? And when you go to your local supermarket, what do you see? How does it impact you? Well, um, I still have school-aged children, so I've noticed their favourite ingredient, mayonnaise. 
in one supermarket was $6.90 and the other $4.80. So I've become a real conscious shopper now. And I think I should have probably been ages ago. But if one thing has taught me with this new future that we have with food um, sustainability, uh, yeah, if you have your favorite items, you really need to shop around because in the same week, it can be a $2 difference. And I have friends who own restaurants, and I'm happy that they raise their prices because I was getting worried for them because I knew how expensive my food was. I couldn't imagine they still had their noodle soup for $12. So if you know your restaurants are raising their prices, we know why. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a tricky you really have to pay attention where you buy your products. Yeah, and Susan, we're going to see that as well. We're going to see this impact uh, on prices in restaurants, the prices that we pay for our meals at eateries and restaurants and cafes. Yeah, absolutely. That flows through. And, and you know, once again, there, you know, the labour is a big part of that as well in, in the service sector there. Um, I guess one area, you know, we can improve as, as both consumers and, um, and more globally is around um, food wastage. Um, Globally, 33% of the food that's grown is wasted at, at some point or other. Um, and here in New Zealand and, and most of the other developed countries, it tends to be more at the consumer level, whereas in some of those other markets, huh. it's actually processing it and, and getting it processed and getting it to market. Um, so, yeah, throwing food out of the refrigerator is, um, is getting expensive. Be mindful of how you shop. Andrew Clay, asparagus, $8 a bunch. Well, I'm going to, uh, you know, I think it's time to everyone move out of the housing market and invest in asparagus, uh, if that's the case. Cauliflower, $8. It's insane, oh. isn't it? And, I, and I've heard all these uh, these reasons given, and they make absolute sense to me, but just on a really, you know, knee-jerk base level, I, I, I struggle with it, with this country that just makes food that... That we that our food is so expensive. I, I just it does my head, and, I, and I, all these aren't, uh, reasons I, I, I totally understand them, but I, I, but I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how uh, cauliflower to me in my head should be a couple of bucks because it's it's grown out of the ground, and we've got lots of ground and lots of fertile area, and all these other things just don't seem to make sense. I you know is it going to be impetus for people to start living off the land more or having their own little veggie garden, their own you know I, I don't know how let's, much. Let's let's put that to Susan because I think that's a great question. You know, I cauliflower. $8, it's just absolutely insane. It should be, as Andrew said, $2. What, what have we come to as a major food-producing nation, we are having to pay for fresh produce, that sort of money? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the costs, I mean, the costs have risen rapidly. We're also becoming a more regulated society. Um, there's a lot more regulations on on how we produce food and how we do things too, um, which which adds to the adds to the final costs. Um, I don't know the exact breakdown at the retail level. Um, you know, who's making who's making the most out of your cauliflower? But um, but but certainly, you, you know, you would think you could produce them cheaper. But I certainly know when I grow them myself in my garden, I don't have a particularly great success um, rate and it might have just been cheaper going to the supermarket. Yeah. Um, will this impact inflation in general? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, everyone's got to um, everyone's got to eat. Um, and so, you know, when food prices are high, it's a bit like when our, you know, our labour prices are high, um, that, that's very broad spread across the economy. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just another factor that's adding to inflation at the moment. Is, is there a, a solution for this? Is there a solution for it, for this country? I mean, Good uh, question. Well, one yeah. of them, uh, Susan said, was uh, be mindful of how you shop regarding food wastage. Food, wa- food wastage is, is there obviously yeah. um, freeing up the, the labour market a bit in terms of immigration. Is there anything, is there anything else that can mm. be done? I mean, regulations taken off to make it easier 
Anything else you, we can think of that we can push for? Yeah, I mean, certainly that um, that, that migration immigration um, regulations is, has been a big part because we have relied on, on immigrants to do a lot of the work, um, particularly in our food producing system. So obviously that's a short t- shorter term solution. Um, a more longer term solution is investing more in technology. That um, means um, we're we're not so reliant on on people to do the the real graft labour um, work. So you know we are starting to see a bit more of that happening. You know automated um, automated um, picking systems and the like. It's it's more happening at the moment in the processing level rather than out on our orchards and farms um, but that's that's kind of the next step um, which which can right. potentially reduce costs over the longer term but probably not so much in the short term because you've got big upfront um, investment to do that um, yeah the wastage the wastage area is, is a big one um, and like I said here it's more at the consumer level than than actually through the, um, through the processing system Kia pai tērā, Susan. Thank you very much for that. That's Susan Kittlesby, uh, agriculture economist at ANZ. Now people are coming through with uh, actually uh, a few tips, and do keep those coming. If you have a couple of uh, tips that you want to share with us, um, text me 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. For example, here's one for you, Boopsy. About two or three people have uh, said, hey, make your own mayonnaise. Ooh, that's a good idea. It's easy. So, putting the food, where has it gone? Where has it gone? Quite a few tips coming through. Um, putting the food, no, I'll send it to you later because it's a very, very good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gone. It's, quite, it's gone. The, te- I do. the text roll through, it goes to the bottom of the page, I oh, can't find it. But uh, we will tell you on the panel later on in the program how to make uh, your own uh, mayonnaise. Uh, you're on the panel, 18 past four. Boopsy Marin and Andrew Clay with me uh, this afternoon. Many of us would have woken up this morning, gone out of the house without your mask. You might have gone to your local cafe like I did, and as I did, seen the barista's face for the first time in a year. I'd like to hear from you this afternoon. How did it feel? Did you still wear your mask on a bus, as an example? Or not. Yesterday, the government announced it would scrap most COVID-19 restrictions that came in place over the course of the pandemic, including the traffic light framework, which outlined the level of risk and responses required. With us is Dr. Brian Betty, the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. Dr. Betty, kia ora. Oh, kia ora. Mask wearing has been part of a lot, you know, our life for quite a while. First made mandatory in August of 2020. Still required in hospitals, GPs, pharmacies, rest homes. How are you feeling about today? Look, I sort of think it was a pragmatic decision that's probably come at the right time. I mean, the COVID numbers have been dropping. Uh, we're moving out of winter into summer where numbers drop again. Um, the hospitals and general practices have got through the winter and our immunisation rates are very high. So I think we're in a very different situation to where we were two years ago. And yeah, um, I think it's probably the right thing to do at this point in terms of where we're at with COVID. Um, are there situations, though, that people outside the hospitals, general practices, that people you know, should be wearing or could be wearing masks, even if they don't have to? Yeah, look, I think we need to be thinking about that. So I'm all for um, mask wearing in general practice and in in hospitals. I think that's very important in rest homes. But I think we should be in a space now where we think about the use of masks as a voluntary thing. So if we're perhaps in a situation 
where we might have a slight sniffle and we're not sure about it, I think we shouldn't be afraid to wear a mask. I think if we're a gathering with perhaps a, a group of older people where perhaps it's a confined space, then maybe wearing a mask is a good thing to do. I think we need to just be in a space where we can think, yep, I can wear a mask and it's okay to do that in certain situations. Yeah, what do you think, Bootsy? Did you, when you woke up this morning, did you feel, oh my goodness, there's a sense, even psychologically, of real freedom? Oh, I don't have to have the mask on. Or were you just a little bit nervous or anxious? What are your thoughts? I like the freedom of choice now. So I still take the bus every day and I wear the mask on the bus because it's quite a confined, small environment. And I noticed when I got on, I was actually the only one without it on and I had it and I was slowly putting it on. So everyone on my bus trip was riding it. This morning? Yeah, this morning. Everyone was riding it Mm. with one person had a mask. And it was funny because then he looked around and noticed he was the only one without the mask. So I think in buses, it just makes sense. And if anything, it taught us that if you do have a slight cough or maybe you have remnants of a cold and you're not staying home, maybe people are going to start wearing masks now, so that'll reduce those kind of illnesses. I don't know, Dr. Betty, do you think that might be an option for people who are sick? That's a new practice that we're getting used to that other cultures have done in the past before COVID. Yeah, look, I I absolutely agree with you. I think we need to be thinking about this. Certainly, if we've got any of those viral symptoms, I think we should be teaching ourselves to stay at home. You know, don't be the hero and go to work and, and spread it. But if we're unsure about it and a slight sore throat, and wearing a mask is actually a responsible thing to do. And it should be part of our culture and it should be something that we say, yep, okay to do, no problems at all. Um, and it does stop the spread of these viral illnesses. Because remember, it's not just COVID, it's influenza, adenovirus, RSV, a whole range of different viral illnesses that get spread in this way. Andrew, what about you? I mean, you've got your mask with you right now. I am, just in case. <laughs> just in case you look, you start to look ill. You do look a bit ill, yeah. Wallace. Um, I, I'm going to look forward, because uh, I'm in walking distance of my local, su- local supermarket, so I'm going to look forward uh, to not walking halfway to the supermarket, realising I've left my mask at home and having to walk back. I'm, I'm going I'm to look forward to that. I'm quite happy to wear it around. Anyone that looks nervous, that you know, that, that, that you know, older people, people at risk, I'm happy. I, I, I'm happy to put it on because it makes sense. Respiratory diseases are, 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 are spread by breathing, you know, you know, air and stuff. So it makes it makes sense. And one of the shocking stats come out of the COVID thing was I learned that 500 people a year in, in, in a normal course of events die of influenza in this country. Well, that's I didn't know that. That's a huge amount of people. It's a huge amount. And, and it stopped, of course, because of COVID. We actually stopped it. So if you could save a few lives from the normal the normal flu, um, you know, if you're around older people, if you're not feeling that well yourself, it's a small sacrifice to make, I think. Actually, it's quite an important point, uh, Dr. Bitt. I think we talked to Professor Michael Baker a few months ago on that, and he mentioned that influenza does cost quite a number of lives per year, and yet we don't uh, perhaps emphasise that uh, as we should. I, I, I think COVID has brought these type of issues really to the fore. And, yeah, no, 500 people a year die from influenza. It's, it's, a, it's, an outs- it's, it's a stunning statistic that we weren't aware of or wasn't widely, widely known. Um, and, again, influenza is spread by people coughing or walking around when they're feeling unwell and, and spreading through, through, through the air. So, um, again, you know, over the last two years with COVID, we've had no influenza deaths, which is really, really interesting. 
Um, and so it does prove that certain things that we put in place slows the spread, and it does protect our elderly, and it does protect those with comorbidity. So it's very, very important. Right. Dr. Betty, thank you very much uh, for your time. It's 24 past for the panel, RNZ National. Uh, hi, everyone. As an apple grower in Hawke's Bay, I can tell you now we get paid a maximum of 25 cents per kilo for local market fruit. So someone's clipping the ticket somewhere. Aren't they just? Yeah. Got to love the capitalist 25, system. 25 cents a kilo. What the? Uh, now... We had quite a response about street parties. It came from the idea uh, from I've been thinking, Boopsy Marin, who said, you know, kind of reclaiming, if you like, not reclaiming, but uh, what else can we do with our urban environment? And uh, one of the things I said is, uh, and Andrew Clay said, why do we not have street parties? Where are those streets that have street parties? Why don't we close that cul-de-sac? Debian Tasman says... I'm from the UK. We had street parties from the Queen's Silver Jubilee when I was a child, and more recently the Diamond Jubilee. Many of the towns in Britain held street parties and erected tables along the streets and even prepared special food. I used to live in Hobsonville, Auckland, and there's a strong community spirit there. Lots of streets recently held parties to get to know the neighbours. With us is Mike of Hataitai. Kia ora, Mike. Kia ora. How's it going? Good. Do you have street parties in Hataitai? No, not in Hataitai, but both my parents in their different locations do. And it's something that's, that I've always thought has been a little bit weird, but they're <laughs> obviously a bit older than me, and they, they love it. So one's in York Bay, so near Eastbourne, and one of them is in Newtown. And they, they're fierce street party people, for sure. There's nothing like a good street party, eh, Boopsie? Well, I was wondering if you know if your parents do it illegally, because there's kind of a rush to just have the street party and you haven't legally shut it. So the real question is to your parents is, do they have a permit? <laughs> so it's normally people with the sort of biggest section or the most appropriate section, they'll offer people come over onto their section, you know, for the street party. So it's not actually mm-hmm. on the street. But in my childhood, it was on the street, illegally, I guess. Yeah, so bring it back to the street. Sounds like a great neighbourhood. I'm heading to Newtown. When's a party? A panel petition. (laughs) Bring back the street party. Bring back the street. I'm I'm from a more rural part of Auckland, so it was all on the paddocks anyway when I grew up. It was literally in the paddocks, 44-gallon drums. But I've got a question for Bibsy here. So uh, are there some streets that geographically lend themselves more? Because I'd imagine having a street party on Great South Road wouldn't be a great idea, for example. You know what I mean? Great North Road. I wouldn't be surprised if Hobsonville point had a strategic plan when they made it to say, uh, hey, this might be the street, because it's a newer development. Yeah, yeah. So they'd say, oh, we're going to do it here. But there are other streets that have existed over the years that probably hosted them in the past illegally, but were definitely less cars going yeah, through. Yeah, ones that don't have thoroughfare, ones that are sort of easily confined, if you know what I mean, don't inconvenience people. I can think of, you know, Northcote Point. I mean, it's probably not the demographic to have a street party, but it would be... Well, you never know. Don't, inconven- don't, don't stereotype oh, people. I lived there for a long time. Oh, okay. But in New, York, in New York, you could have a permanent party for $25, and you just take your rubbish bins on each side, and it's legal because you've just told them, hey, we're having a party here. All right, Mike, our, our, our panel challenge to you is close down on the main thoroughfare in Haitaitai and, <laughs> and put on a bit of... Um, Here we go. Suddenly bo- I'm going to be up on encouraging music. illegal behaviour. Put on a bit of Fat Boy Slim, Mike. <laughs> Bouncy Castle. And, Bouncy. and have a street party. 
do it. Well, that's what it does need that, you know, an email list and things, and that's what my parents have that we don't have here. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, the thing no, that I, I think is. Yeah. Thanks for anyway, that. Nice and to talk. Nice to talk. And <laughs> with us, back in with the 80s. exactly, you see. Yeah. And with us now, um, continuing the street party theme because we're all loving the street party here on the panel. Uh, Bruce Kiora, welcome to the panel. Oh, Kiora Wallace, how are you? I'm very well. What about you? Tell us about your street party days. Yeah, well, it was. Um, I'm obviously I'm from England, as you may tell, but um, I came out here in about 1981. But I remember in 77, as a teenager, before I came out here, um, and I was brought up in a rural part of England, um, uh, villages, basically. But every village had a, had its own village green. You see? So you'd get a gathering there. Awesome. That's yeah, we, what we need more of. Yeah, yeah, so people planning future places like Hobsonville, and, and there is some, still lots of housing going in, need to think these things through. Because they lend to lots, they, they lend themselves to lots of good things. Community spirit, which you'd think in turn would lead to lower crime rates, people looking after each oh. other, all, all those kinds of, and, you know, things that you don't initially think of just from a party yeah. all happen. And Bruce, that's actually the sort of the background. Not only are you getting together with your uh, neighbours and playing a little bit of Fat Boy Slim and having a Cheerio <laughs> and wearing a wearing a really really wearing a little hat. I don't, I don't think we had Fat Boy Slim in those days. <laughs> <laughs> in the late 70s. Chaz and Dave or something. Good, yeah, okay, Chaz. Day, but you're getting you're getting to know your you 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 know the people next door to you. Yeah, well, you know everyone in the village basically. It's and did wonderful. they did they use three phase power? Because that's the next step. Is it's the amplified sound. <laughs> the high tech. The high tech. You just lost me. Just yeah, quietly. Three phase power. What you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, Mike. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so, Street Party for Nags. Oh, uh, Hamilton Road, Hataitai, still has an annual street party shared around the neighbourhood. Um, quite a few here. I know a street in Sandringham that has one every year. It's fantastic. During lockdown, they sat on their booms and chatted across the road. <laughs> <laughs> was good, that, good was that allowed? Not quite sure. Anyway, uh-huh. that's what they did in Sandringham. Oh, you're uh, your boom. You could, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're allowed to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Lovely to have your company. We are with Boopsy Marin and Andrew Clay this afternoon.